Lord, we love you, God. We thank you for today. We thank you for a time of just uh, thinking on you already as we've been prompted by the words of the songs we sang and by just the sharing of hearts from, from those that have led us so far, Lord. And I'd, I, I pray for this time as we come to your word. Lord, I pray that our hearts, our minds will be open regardless of, of kind of what steps have brought us to this place today, whether we come in uh, embracing belief or skeptical. Lord, I pray that uh, your truth would penetrate our hearts. I pray that the reality of who you are as God and how your character was shown in the way that you have loved us in sending Jesus, Lord, to reconcile us, to redeem us, to restore us into relationship with you. I pray that that would humble us today. I pray that would bring us to a place of surrender and repentance, Lord, that we could know hope and life and you could be glorified. So we give you this time. Let it be a pleasing offering to you. Speak through me, in spite of me, just whatever it is. Let your transforming word be delivered today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good. Thank you guys for uh, giving me those moments. Um, you know, the, I was uh, meeting with some fellow pastors a couple weeks ago, and we had done these assessments, you know, these kind of personality behavioral assessments, and we were evaluating on whether or not we felt like our feedback from the assessments was accurate. And one of the guys in our group, he said, you know, I, I really don't, I don't know if I agree with mine. I don't like it. We were like, oh, okay, well, what did it say? He's like, well, it says, it says that I'm indecisive. And we were like, well, okay, so, so why, why do you think it was wrong? He says, well, I, I, just, I just don't agree with it. I mean, I, I can be decisive, but sometimes I'm indecisive. But I can make decisions, but sometimes it does take me a while. I don't know. Maybe, I'm in, maybe I am indecisive. Uh, and we all laughed. So <laughs> he's indecisive. Making decisions is easier for some than it is for others. As we study our last article of our statement of faith today, that we, as we've been working through this foundation series over these last 10 weeks, we see that we all have to make a decision. We all have to respond to the truth of God, who Jesus is, and the work of Christ. So today as we finish this, we're looking at what it is, the, the call to response and the reality of an eternal destiny for every person created. So we're going to start off reading our statement together today. It'll be on your screen. I'm going to read it here. It says this. It says, We believe that God commands everyone everywhere to believe the gospel by turning to Him in repentance and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that God will raise the dead bodily and judge the world, assigning the unbeliever to condemnation and eternal conscious punishment, and the believer to eternal blessedness and joy with the Lord in the new heaven and the new earth, to the praise of His glorious grace. Amen. There's a lot there. Um, I, I will remind you that we use the Version Bible app, uh, Live Events, which has all these passages as well as our statement of faith, as well as this article of our statement of faith broken out into uh, scripture references to support. There's also, I'm pointing this out now because I want to make sure, uh, there's also some great questions for further uh, reflection for, for you and your time of prayer and study, as well as maybe over coffee or just at someone's home for you guys to continue to wrestle with this. Because I, I imagine there were some things in that statement that probably caused you to recoil maybe a little bit or at least question marks to fly above your head. Um, and so, again, 
we want to wrestle well with these truths. We want to wrestle faithfully, bringing our understandings to the truth of God. And so know that just as we have said every week, these statements come from Scripture. These are a summary of the convictions we see in Scripture. Uh, but for us to understand this statement today, we're going to uh, experience. We're going to look at an experience that Paul had while he was in Athens. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, flip in, uh, or, or click on your apps, or if you don't have either of those, feel free to grab a Bible underneath the chair there, um, and you can use that. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that. That's our gift to you. But we're going to turn to Acts 17 today, and that's where we're going to look. I'm going to, while you're turning, I'm going to do a bit of kind of history summary work, kind of give you some context so that we can come into our teaching today with some momentum. So go ahead. Once again, I, I love doing this. Get your imaginations going. Try to put yourself in the time of, you know, the, the early centuries, um, you know, just, just after Christ, walking in the streets of Athens. Go ahead and get there. Put your toga on, whatever it takes, you know, and, and let's think about that. So I'm going to work, I'm going to kind of give you some, I'm going to paint a picture here of what's happening as we come into the latter part of Acts 17. So Paul had previously been teaching with Timothy and Silas in Berea. And before that, he was in Thessalonica. And Thessalonica didn't go well. He got ran out. He went to Berea. It went well. These were faithful uh, Jewish leaders, and they wanted to hear. They were faithfully listening. Some believed, but then the Thessalonican Jews heard about it. They got mad, and they came to Berea, where Paul, Timothy, and Silas were, and started causing trouble, raising up dissent. And everyone said, hey, Paul, it's getting pretty thick in here. You better get out of here. So Paul ducks out while Timothy and, Timothy and Silas stay behind to wrap up the work. So Paul leaves Berea. He goes to Athens. He's just kind of hanging out in Athens. They've got other places to go, but he's waiting there for Timothy and Silas. So he's here, and now I want you just to imagine Paul. He's kind of walking around Athens, right? He's walking around. He's just looking at things. He's listening, and he's, he's just seeing life. And Athens is this place of, of just this melting pot of culture for various reasons, which we're not going to go into all the history of how it ended up being this melting pot of, of, of culture and belief. But it was, and there was all these schools of thought. They, 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 they prized uh, being a, a lofty thinker, and, and they loved new thoughts and philosophy. Um, and, and so Paul's just walking around, and he's hearing this. He's walking the streets of Athens. Everywhere he looks, he sees idols. And I mean everywhere. There's an ancient, one of the ancient historians, ancient writers wrote of Athens. He said, it is easier to find a god than a man in Athens. And he's talking about just the imagery, the imagery and the statues of all the different deities that there were around Athens. And so Paul is seeing this. And as he's walking around and taking it in, what we see here is that Paul's heart is being stirred up. This fire is kindling and burning within him. And he's supposed to just be there hanging out, waiting for Timothy and Silas. He had just run into trouble because of the word that he was preaching. And I can imagine him kind of walking around and just thinking, okay, I'm here just to wait for Timothy and Silas. But I mean, but, 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 but God, like they, they don't know. But I'm just here to tell these. I just, I mean, I just had trouble there. I don't want to get, you know, in trouble here. I got somewhere else to be. I've got a job to do in the next place that I'm going. You know, let's just lay low here. But, oh, but oh, they're so wrong. There's, they don't understand. They don't know. Oh my gosh, they're defaming the name of God. They don't. You can see this going on within Paul as he's walking around Athens. In Athens, there were two main schools of thought that were kind of lauded as the dominant philosophies. One was the Epicurean, which is not the grocery chain, 
but it was actually a philosophy of thought back then, and the Stoics. You're like, okay, great. So let me just tell you real quickly kind of the, the, the main train of thought of these two philosophies. And the Epicureans, it was founded by Epicurus, curiously. Uh, they, they, uh, they, for the Epicurean, pleasure was the chief goal of life. Now, this did not necessarily result in complete hedonism for the faithful Epicurean, uh, but, but it did result in a balance between pain and pleasure. Epicurus, the founder of Epicureanism, did not deny the existence of gods, but argued in the deistic fashion that they took no interest in the lives of men. They were removed and impersonal. So basically said of the Epicurean thought, we can say this, this life is all there is. You only go around once. So if it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, stay away from it. Avoid what hurts. That's the Epicureans. The other major philosophy uh, that, that was there in Athens was the Stoics, not founded by Sto, it was founded by Zeno. Yeah, good try. That, that, that would be one of the jokes where Amber just shakes her head, or Sanj. So, um, founded by a guy named Zeno. Uh, f- funny enough, when I was a kid, I had, a, had an imaginary friend named Fino of no relation. But uh, it was founded by Zeno, this guy, uh, their basic thought says this, I can't control everything that's going on out there, and things are going to happen to me that I, that I don't like, but I'm still in charge of myself. Therefore, I'm going to stand tall, stick out my chin, and take it, whatever comes. So theologically, Zeno was essentially a pantheist and thought of God as the world soul. So those are the two major schools of thought that permeated Athens. And if you ask me, it sounds pretty familiar to the world we live in. When we think about Paul and what I described in our, in our summary, Paul obviously is living in a world no different from our own. And, and I think of, you know, will I respond as Paul did? And we're going to see how he responded in just a moment. Paul was stirred up by what he had seen and heard and, and what was being taught. And he, and he couldn't help it. He couldn't, he couldn't deny it. And he just started to teach. And he first went to the synagogues and started teaching there. And then he went to the public spaces, to the marketplace, it says, and started teaching there. And as he drew a crowd and these Epicureans and these Stoics heard what he was teaching, it was foreign to them. I mean, it wasn't familiar at all. They called him a babbler. And that that Greek word babbler, the the root of it is in these little birds that go around just just pecking at random seeds. And so what they're saying is, is like, you're just grabbing different craziness different crazy like pieces of thought from this, that, and the other, and you're bringing it together and saying something totally incoherent. That's basically the accusation against him. So they, they take Paul and they say, well, we want to hear more of this. And they bring him to the council of the Areopagus, which was this, this ruling council that would decide if a, if a philosophy of teaching and thought was worth considering. So it's these Epicureans and these Stoics that bring Paul before the Areopagus, which brings us to our teaching today. So that summary is Acts 17, 1 through 21, and maybe even a little bit prior to chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 22 through 34 today to see, uh, as Paul, his response to the Areopagus is just this great message. I mean, thinking about the commonalities of the world that he was walking around and the world that we walk around today, we should pay attention 
to Paul's response, to what he says when he's brought before these people to vet his message. I love it. I mean, this is a preacher's dream because he did it. He did it for me. Like, I didn't have to sit here and be like, okay, well, how can I make this? It's just Paul did it. So he, he has a great intro. He has four clear points, and then he's got a closing. I mean, like, what else can we want? So, so he did this. Don't give me any credit. This is all Paul, but that's what we're going to go through today. All right, so let's read this entire text together. Actually, we're going to do uh, verses 22 through 31. And so it says this. Here we go. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation and of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And then he starts quoting their poets, the people that they lauded. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Before then, God's offspring, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he took it to Jesus right then. So let's just work through Paul's message. First, we look at Paul's introduction. Paul brilliantly and astutely and attentively starts with what he saw. I mean, gosh, just remember, he was walking through the streets of Athens. His heart was stirred up. He was brought before them, and he knew that what he saw reflected their values. So he started with what they saw. He said, I see you're religious men. I see you're very religious. I've seen this, this idol that says to an unknown God. He references that all. And just so you know, that maybe that one statue's never been found, but there are records of statues in Athens that actually have that inscription, just for those history buffs who like empirical proof. So there you go. But he sees this. Paul doesn't address why God is unknown to them here. Did you notice that? But we do see that Paul does understand why. He's addressed this in, in one of his other letters in Romans. We see in Romans 1.20 says this, for his invisible attributes, we're talking about God, for his invisible, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So Paul knows that these great thinkers and philosophers that he's standing before in Athens don't know God because they choose not to know God. This is what Paul confronts. 
See, we can see the earnestness. Paul could see the earnestness of the philosophers. He wasn't afraid to affirm that earnestness. And we think about, again, our conversations as Christ followers seeking to humbly, respectfully, but, but proactively engage the world with the truth of Jesus, with being the light of the world, the light of Christ. We think about some of these, diff- these difficult questions that we ask. Again, I mean, we are in this exact same setting. We face a lot of really difficult questions in our thoughtful, and, and you know, through thoughtful seekers, skeptics, unbelievers. And, and we can acknowledge that it's hard to know the answer to every nuanced question. But while we cannot possibly prepare for every question, we must prepare nonetheless, right? A thoughtful question deserves a thoughtful answer. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we must meet people where they are. We must do the work of seeking God to understand the, the truths of who he is and who we are in him and what his purpose in this world is for us and his ultimate purpose. And as we do that, we affirm in order, to, in order to proclaim and confront with the truth. And so as we do this, and as we, as we hear these questions, and we want to get to what matters most, as Paul does here, he knows that they do not know because they do not seek. They do not want to know. As we seek to do the same, we must remain humble. We must be able to say, I don't know, but I'd love to learn that with you. And all the while proclaiming all that we know of the person of God made possible in Christ. So that's the introduction. Paul just brilliantly starts right where they're at, sets it up of, of you don't know because you, you've chosen not to know, but you can know. And that, so that's what Paul has done. And now he proclaims the person of God. That's his response. So the first point that Paul makes as he starts proclaiming the person of God is this. God is the creator of all things. If you think about where we started this summer teaching through the statement of faith, we started with who God is. No coincidence. we got to start there. Verse 24 says this, The God who made the world and everything in it. So God is the creator of all things. I've told you this before, but one of the things I love asking my kids is, who created you? They say God. I say, what else did God create? They say everything. And I say, why did God create you and everything? And they say, for his glory. Like that, I, I, I know that they don't fully get all that right now. But that's, again, as I've said, like last time I said this, that's wood in the fireplace. The Holy Spirit is going to catch fire later. But, but it's important for them to understand that. And I, I want their entire worldview to be rooted in God as creator of everything. And we'll see why that matters. So why does that matter here? There, there are two reasons, I would say, that, of why it matters that these men understand, that these listening understand that God is the creator of all things. First is a matter of God's majesty and authority over our lives. If God created you and me, if he created all things, he must have rule over it. He must be the one where the buck stops. He must be the one who gets to define what's right and wrong. He, he must be the one that gets to define truth. So God is the creator of all things. Therefore, he has the sovereign majesty rule and reign over all things. Second is that once again, thinking about what Paul is teaching here, we are left without excuse to believe who God is because God is not left 
this world without a witness. As we just read in Romans 1.20, the creation itself is a witness to the reality of God. God's creation is a witness to His existence and involvement in this world. God has made Himself known. Paul's putting the gauntlet down right away. So it's a word of comfort. He can be known. It's also a word of accountability. He must be known. I've talked talked to so many sincere skeptics that have said this statement to me. It's impossible for me to look around and deny that there is some greater being or God involved in what I see. And then they always follow up with, but I just can't something. And that's, that, that heart is there, that ability to see something more and that inability to deny an existence of a, of a creator is because of God's work, because he wants to be known and he demands that you know him. Paul is stripping the idea away that God cannot be known. So, as creator, God has made himself known and that he's involved. This takes us to Paul's second point here. And so we see that his first point was that he's the creator of all things. Secondly, God is the sustainer of all things. In the end of verse 24, in the beginning, in verse 25, God continuing to assault, God speaking says, God does not live in temples made by man, in verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So if God is our sustainer, the very first thing we must see is that we are not the ones who provide for God. God provides for you and me. We are not the one who meets God's needs. He has no need that we can satisfy. But every need that we have, only He can satisfy. So as our sustainer and the sustainer of all that is created, every need is met in Him. God holds the world together. To say that the world, to say when we say he holds the world together, all things, tangible and intangible, all that is, is created by God. Colossians 1.17, speaking of the culmination of the work of God in Christ, speaking of Jesus, says, And he is before all things, and in him, and in him all things hold together. And, you know, some of us are positive by nature, and some, will like, some would maybe prefer to say that they're a realist, right? Um, that's what some would say. Uh, but some are positive, some are realists in this world. And, and for, for those, maybe you look around and you say, well, I call foul. The world is falling apart. It's going downhill. Especially if you hear the, the modern cry of the... <laughs> Uh, the conservative right, we'll just say it, maybe I'll like get in trouble for that, but like the far conservative right, your left right now, but my right, um, like it is that, oh my gosh, the world's falling apart, all hope is lost. You hear that and you're like, okay, so how is God holding all things together? And let us just be reminded that without intervention, any organic living thing always moves to decay. Would you like some examples? How about your backyard, if you have one? How about your house, if you have one? How about your body? Mine's moving to decay. Turned 42 days ago. How about that? <laughs> Woohoo! That's awesome! Amber said, I, won't, I, won't, I don't know who said this to her, but someone uh, she was with said, 
how, how's, how's he doing with being 40? It's like he's not getting out of bed and he's just laying there. No, I, it's pretty funny. I'm okay. But we, we know that without intervention, all living things, all organic things move to decay. So we look around our world, which is a created thing, and the fact that it is, there is still beauty in it. There is still goodness in this world. There is still the, the benevolent spirit that, 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 that rings out. There's still a beautiful sunset to see. We see God's sustaining work in this world and His common grace, which is those general things that you observe, as well as His, His specific and applied grace through Christ where we are totally regenerated, totally made new. So God being the sustainer of holding all things together, without His sustaining work, this world would be done for right now but He is sustaining. So God is the creator of all things, which is why we're here at all. He's the sustainer of all things, which is why there is any order and and semblance of a life worth living. So He's a creator. He's our sustainer. Paul continues to build his case of why God can be known and what our response must be. His next point is this, that God is the ordainer of all things. So he's the creator, the sustainer, now he's the ordainer of all things. Verse 26 says this, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So not only does God sustain, he also guides the affairs of all mankind. It's funny to me how often this is uncomfortable for us to think about control being taken away. Like, and, and it, you know, of course, if we play that out, it comes down to a question of trust. Do we trust who God is? Do we trust his motivations? Do we trust his character? Which uh, I'm getting to the point of this whole sermon. But we get really uncomfortable when we think about that, that, that our affairs are in someone else's hands. We want to know how things will go. We don't like the uncertainty. We want to know how long ISIS will last. We want to know, to contrast, uh, you know, who we will marry, if we'll ever get married, if we're married, how our family will turn out. Like the Kiefer's are about to have a kid, their first kid, any day now. We're just happy Kurt's here today. It could have been baby day. Uh, yeah, can't wait. Um, but I remember when we were about to have Gavin, our first, you know, six years ago, and I would just look at Amber and I'd be like, what's, what's he going to be like? And now that they're five and four, I'm like, what kind of teenagers are they going to be? You know, and, and it's just, you know, all these questions of uncertainty, and we want to know, we want to be able to control. I hate the thought of either one of my kids ever getting hurt in any way, shape, or form, and knowing that there are times that I'm going to be the one that hurts them, and I want to know how I can avoid all of that. We want to know how our country will fare under the leadership of the next president, whoever that will be. That's a big question mark. We don't like it because we don't have control. So here, what Paul is calling us to is says, because God is in control, we can trust all things to Him. God is never surprised or caught off guard. 
This also calls us to the truth of, of the greater need of all mankind. Just thinking of a little bit of personal application just for a moment. God has caused, when we think about God being you know, the ordainer of all things, and that we all came from His one creation of Adam and Eve, and so again, it's all part of His one creation, and that even where we are born, who we are born to, what gifts we have, what opportunities we get, He is ordainer over all those things. We can root that in the sovereignty of God. There's nothing outside of His influence and rule. So when we think about this, all of a sudden, it, we have to be led to this, under, this, this thinking on the greatest need of every person. God has called some to be born into poverty and some into abundance. Some have been born into countries of peace and some into war. Some are born into families that stayed married forever and they're like, leave it to beaver or what's a more modern reference? I don't know. Um, there is one out there, I'm sure, but they're just crazy. Uh, and, and some are born into families that are broken in every way and they experience some of the worst atrocities through their own family. When we think on this and we think that God is ordaining in all things, we don't think that, you know, we can't be led to think that, that God is, is, you know, that He is ambiguous or even favoring some of the others, God sees the bigger picture and sees the ultimate work of his redemption and sees the greatest need of every man where it is the, the, the restoring of the soul in Christ, the restoring of the relationship. So we must work to bring human flourishing in every arena that we can, seeking peace, meeting the needs of the destitute, being an advocate for the oppressed and abused. And we must do this in very tangible ways. We are called to participate in the, in the very work of God, the work that, that would reflect the reality of His restored kingdom, where death is wiped away. There's no more sickness, no more tears. We are called to come alongside and participate in the active, tangible work of those things. But at the same time, at the same time, we must never lose sight of the greatest and common need of all of us. And I say greatest and common because it is every one of us. We can never put, our, put ourselves outside of that need, no matter how much grace we've experienced, no, no matter how long we've walked in faithfully in the Christian faith. We are always in this common need uh, of restoring and grace. So what we must see is, and we must learn is to see the spiritual need just again as Paul did. He didn't focus on the surface. He's digging deep. It is the need of the impoverished and abused soul. The one, the soul that believed the lie of the tempter, of the deceiver, the devil. The one that rebelled and found itself outcast in an orphan, dead in sin. That is, that is the oppressed, the abused, the victimized soul. We must call people to grace in Christ. We must do the soul work as well as the tangible work. God ordains all things and is in control and is working to restore the souls of all those he calls. So in this, when we think about God being our, he, he ordains all things, be comforted and be humbled. So maybe now, maybe now you see the importance of why Paul proclaims the person of God to these who are so far off. It is in knowing God that we will seek Him, and in seeking Him, we know Him more. And this is Paul's final point. His final point is that we must seek God. 
So God is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the ordainer of all things. Therefore, we must seek him. He has made himself known. Verse 27 says this, that they should seek God and perhaps fill their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far off, not far from each one of us. So let's just trace Paul's train of thought real quickly. God not only exists, he is the creator of all things. As a creator, as the creator, he sustains all things. God sustains all things because he is in control and always working for his glory and the redemption of his people. Excuse me. Although you are blind in unbelief, although these that Paul is addressing and, and that we are addressing are blind in unbelief, God has made himself known enough to awaken an awareness and a hunger for him so they should seek him. In reading this and thinking through this, I was reminded of an activity of my, my days of youth, since I'm 40 now. I used to go caving a lot. And I say I used to. I mean, literally, I don't know if I will ever go again. That's another conversation. But one of the things I loved to do when I would go, I would get into the depths of the cave. And, I, and if you've never been, it's just hard to describe this. But we would get down, we would be just caving. We'd be just descending, 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 and, and going through these different mazes and stuff for a couple hours. And you got to think, every, every foot that you go, it gets darker and darker. And you don't think it can be any darker when you first go into the cave. But when you get down into the depths of this cave, one of the things I love to do, which gives me the heebie-jeebies now to think about, but I would sit down, we would, and we would all sit down, and we would turn off all of our lights. And if you've never done this, it is one of the weirdest experiences, the darkest dark you will ever see. I mean, like, it was so dark that my eyes created things to see. Like, I would put my hand in front of my face, and my body knew that it was there because it was mine, right? That's how it works. And, and I would swear that I could see it just because my, my, my eyes wanted to see something so bad. And I'm a scenario guy. And so at one point, I was, sitting down in the, I was sitting down in this darkness, and I was doing my little hand trick, and I was telling my friends, do it. You'll think you'll see your hand too. And then I just kind of played out this scenario, like, what if we all dropped our flashlights? And it, I mean, my, oh, I mean, what a horrible, because I mean, all of a sudden, like, I just, the hopelessness of it, like, I was like, we are down here, like, I don't know how many feet below the surface in the darkest of dark, and I just thought about that moment. And I, I mean, so I dropped my flashlight. I didn't for real. Okay, playing out the scenario. This is all in my mind. And so I dropped my flashlight. And what am I left to do? I can sit there and die, long and slowly. Or I can do my best groping around in the dark. And I'll tell you, it's precarious. There's no, like, just pleasant level ground in a cave. Like, you know, it's like... It's all muddy because everything's moist down there. There's, it's all formed by water usually, and, and, and there's just there's holes and cliffs and stuff. And so I would, I, would, I would have had to have crawled on my hands and knees carefully, try not to fall into any holes or get pinned under anything or fall. In, but it would have been worth it because I knew the flashlight was there, and I knew that the flashlight was my only way out back to life. That is the word picture that Paul is painting here to these. When he says that God has revealed himself enough to you for you to know that he is there, but you must seek. You must seek. He is your only way to life. We must 
seek God. Because there is no hope in this life without Him. It feels dangerous, and maybe it is even in some ways. But there is no hope any other way, and therefore the seeking is worth it. So Paul's made his case. He's made his case of who God is and what our response must be, or at least he's began the call to response. What is his conclusion? Paul's conclusion is this, simply said, all should repent. Verse 29 and 30 says this, Being then God's offspring, again, those that He created who are part of His offspring, who are part of His family, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, something paltry that the human hands created, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, which is, which is as amazing as the imagination of man is. I mean, I've seen some beautiful things in this world. It, it pales. It can't even come close to comparing to the ability of God is what Paul's pointing out here. And, and so, it, you know, not as if it's an image of the art or imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Is this surprising to you to look at this final statement? Think about what Paul didn't do. And again, think about what led Paul to speak up. It was what he saw, what he heard, what he observed and he gets this audience before the very people perpetuating this way of life that was against the very person of God, the reality of God as creator, sustainer, ordainer. What did he not do? He did not chastise them for their way of life. He actually said, hey, in your ignorance, God overlooked how you lived before, but now, is the time to repent. He didn't confront their crazy, wrong belief and debaucherous way of life. Although he certainly could have. I guarantee you, you would have blushed to observe what was going on there. Paul says simply, you must repent. Repent of what? Man, if you grew up around the church... Maybe this isn't a new word for you. And if it's not, there's a great chance that what comes to mind when we think about repentance, which we can just say asking forgiveness for the things we've done against God and saying, I won't do them anymore. Just in that language itself, we see that we think about behavior, the things that we have done wrong, the things that we haven't done right, the things that we've done that we shouldn't do, the things that we haven't done that we should have done. That's not what Paul does. What does he call them to repent of. Remember what he did. He pointed out that they have no excuse any longer in, in, in not knowing God. And then in denying the one true God as God, they have existed in the rebellion of every human. They're responsible for it themselves. Paul had no need to confront the behavior that he saw because he knew that the behavior was a result of the disbelief. Again, the deeper root we have to see the similar need in our world and in ourselves. We cannot call ourselves or the world to merely repent of wrong behaviors. That cannot be the extent of it. That's far too shallow. We must call ourselves and the world to repent of our disbelief, our distrust, our denying of who God is, and our, and our, and our inactivity of pursuing Him. So God's glorious rule, His love and grace 
when we understand those, when we know those, those things, His rule, His, His love, His grace, are the root of right behavior. That is why we must repent. We repent for our disbelief. We repent for our denial. We repent for our rebellion. God is far more concerned that He is on the throne of your life than He is with how perfect you were today. You see, that perfection that is demanded, God demands perfection but it is satisfied in Christ alone. And that matters if we were to read it in, in verses 30 and 31. Paul spoke of that final judgment that is to come, where we are all judged according to our righteousness. There is a day coming when all will be judged according to their righteousness. And we must remember our righteousness, our efforts, even to the best of anyone that's ever lived, is as filthy rags compared to what God requires. But God made a way in Christ for us to be judged innocent because we are given the righteousness, the innocence of Christ. In Christ, we know God. So God has made himself known through all of creation in order that we would seek him. Through Christ, God has made himself knowable and has made a way for us to have right standing before him. So today, repent and believe and know the glorious eternal hope of Jesus. And if you know that, if you have made that right confession and repented, then live a life with your eyes and hearts open as Paul did as he walked through the streets of Athens. See the fruitlessness of the striving. See the emptiness of the things that the world is clinging so tightly to. Know the anchor of hope that is found in God alone as our creator, sustainer, and ordainer. We do not have to live in fear. And call the world to that hope. And realize it is a kindness. As it says in Romans, it is God's kindness that calls us, that leads us to repentance. So done in love done rightly, we need to call people to repentance and understanding that that is loving. We don't call people to repent of behavior first. We call them to repent of unbelief. It is those who are in Christ that need to repent of our behavior. So let me pray. God, you are so good. Your patience. But I pray that we will marvel at your patience. Lord, that you have stayed your hand of judgment in order that we could come to a place of knowing you, God, of being restored in you. Lord, of being delivered from our unbelief, Lord, repenting that we could know life. Lord, I pray for those in this room or those that we know that are, that are seeking, that are groping around in the dark right now. Lord, they know that you're there. They can't deny it. Lord, I thank you that it says you are not far off. And so, Lord, I pray that through your work, Lord, that they would know you, Lord, through your church, through those, through, through us, God. Lord, that they would know your love, they would know your truth. Lord, it would be something that you call into yourself through us. God, I pray if anyone is in this room today that needs to repent 
for the first time to belief in Christ, making that confession that comes from a change of heart. I pray for the courage. I pray for the freedom. I pray for the conviction to make that decision today. I pray for those that are walking with you that have acknowledged Christ as the Messiah, Savior, and Lord confess and repented. I pray that we would repent of our daily unbelief, knowing that there are times that we act in disbelief, and that our behaviors, that we don't just repent of our behaviors, but that as, we, as you bring those things to mind that are the present things of our life that are not honoring to you, that it would take us deeper to the places of unbelief and we would be restored. You would strengthen our faith and our understanding Lord, I pray for a hunger for your word, knowing that it is in your truth that you have revealed your will and way and your very person. Lord, it is through your church that you desire to administer that truth to one another and to the world. So, Lord, we give you this time. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified as a result of this truth. We pray that lives will be transformed. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.